There are some moments in time where clocks seem to stop and the actions freeze and you know that things will never be the same again. Some of those are national crises like Pearl Harbor or the assassination of JFK or 9-11, moments you won't ever forget. There are also personal moments that you won't forget. It may be the loss of a loved one, the birth of a child. It could be different successes or changes or big failures in your life. For me, I remember the 24 hours leading up to my grandfather's sudden heart attack that I experienced with him. I remember getting down on one knee in the middle of an orange grove and proposing to my wife. And I remember being uh, in St. Vincent's Hospital and becoming a father for the first time. And I remember the pain of Tom Brady winning another Super Bowl (laughs) last week. When we get to heaven, what are the moments that you're going to remember in your life? What are those times that you're going to reflect on for all of eternity? Well, Joseph experienced one of those moments in chapter 44 and chapter 45, the two that we're going to look at today. And so let me tell you a little bit about that day. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back to Genesis 44, 45. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, it is found on page 38. So if you remember where we left last week, Joseph's brothers have just returned the second time to buy more grain so that their families would not starve. Joseph invites his brothers to come to their house. They don't know what's going to happen, but Joseph has in mind of throwing this elaborate feast with lots of wine. And so during the course of the night following this party, or in the wee hours of the morning, Joseph instructs his steward to not only fill their sacks with grain, but to put Joseph's silver cup in one of the sacks. And so the next morning, the brothers wake up with their sacks of grain, with Joseph's silver cup in the bag, and surely hazy memories from the night before, they set off. Hazy memories might have included uh, Simeon, might have thought back, man, I shouldn't have had that much wine. Ended up standing up on Joseph's table, singing karaoke, walk like an Egyptian. Some of you remember that 80s song from the Bengals. But with hazy memories, with sacks full of grain, and with Joseph's silver cup, they set off on their journey. And it wasn't long before they heard the sound of sirens and they see the sight of flashing lights as Joseph's steward overtakes them. And as he overtakes the brothers, he asks them and accuses them, why have you taken my master's silver cup? In righteous indignation, they declare that no one has taken the silver cup. And if they find the silver cup, then they should surely die. They are confident of their innocence. And then one by one, the steward begins to go through their sacks of grain, starting with Reuben. And you can just imagine as the steward goes through the sack and finds no silver cup, that their indignation grows, their arms become folded across their chest, And they want to say, see, we told you so, until they come to the last sack, the bag of Benjamin. And triumphantly, the steward reaches in and pulls out the silver cup. 
No words are recorded by the brothers, but their actions tell it all. In response, they tear their clothes. You may remember that when Joseph was sold into slavery, only the father tore his clothes. And so the text is telling us and showing us that the brothers' hearts have begun to be changed because now they identify with Benjamin and they tear their clothes. And in response, instead of just sending Benjamin back with the steward of Joseph, they all return to go back and to face the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph. In a sense, Joseph is putting through them this series of tests, and this is final jeopardy. He's seen some signs of repentance in their heart, but he has to know, he has to know, if I put them in the same scenario that I was in several years ago, would they give up and abandon a brother for their own personal gain, not just silver this time, but their freedom? Would they leave Benjamin, and would they return home. And Judah, one of the brothers, steps up before the prime minister of Egypt, and he gives the longest speech recorded in Genesis in what one commentator described as the most moving address in the entire Bible. And Judah steps before the prime minister in 44:33 and basically says, I promised my dad, I made a pledge that I'd bring Benjamin back to you. So please, please, let me change places with Benjamin. Let me become your slave. And let the boy, let Ben return home. That takes us up to the end of 44. And in the beginning of chapter 45, we see now that Joseph can no longer control, control himself. This is a grown man. He's a tender-hearted beast, and he weeps like no man has ever wept before. He cries so loud that the neighbors up the street in verse 2 hear him crying. And Joseph, he is responding to the genuine repentance that he perceives in the hearts of his brothers that is paving the way towards restoration and reconciliation. There's about to be a moment. And so he sends out all the other Egyptians. He keeps the brothers in the room, and as they face the prime minister of Egypt, who up until this point has only spoke Egyptian, now speaks in their language that they can understand. In Hebrew, he looks at his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the response of the brothers is perhaps the most understated line, the most understated line in all of Scripture. They say, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You think? (laughs) (laughs) And then, because Joseph has already forgiven them in his heart, he begins to comfort his brothers. And he talks about the providence of God, that you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. You meant to do this, but God was ruling and overruling the mundane details of life so that your family might be preserved. And then, in verses 14 and 15, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, he wept, and he hugged him. And we sort of expect that. But what's amazing is that Joseph continues, and he hugs Reuben's neck, 
And he hugs Simeon's neck. And he hugs Levi's neck. One by one, all the brothers who sold him into slavery, he embraces them and they weep. And after this hug fest, after this cry fest, it says they talk throughout the night. Perhaps for the first time ever in their lives, they really talk as a family. What a moment. You know this is one of those moments that Joseph is going to remember for all of eternity. You know he's going to be talking about this to everyone who will listen when we see him in heaven. It's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. It's an amazing story. But what does this have to do with us? Most of us would not consider ourselves genocidal murderers whose estranged brother became the prime minister of Egypt. So what in the world does this story have to do with you and I? Well, I would submit to you that to one degree or another, we are like Judah. To one degree or another, we have hurt and harmed others. To one degree or another, we have broken souls. And we've done things to people that we regret. And we've not done things for people that we know that we should have done. We have to admit that there are things very wrong with all of us. There's foolishness in our minds. There's jealousy in our hearts. There's cowardice and fear more than we care to admit in our souls. There's selfishness, constantly using others to achieve our own ends. Every single person on the face of the earth, to one degree or the other, have a broken soul. And all of us, in different moments to varying degrees, have experienced that guilt, that awakening of the conscience. The sky is often dark and the terrain is steep and rough. And there's no point in pretending about the brokenness in our own lives. One pastor said, peace is not easy to find in this broken world with broken souls. We are all both sinners and sinned against, victims and victimizers. To one degree or another, we can all identify with Joseph. And to one degree or another, we can all identify with Judah. So let's look a little bit more closely at the life of Judah. Let's consider it together. It's important to hear his words. It's important to hear the voice of a new creature in Christ. Listen again to his words to Joseph. He says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. If you've been here at all in this sermon series, you know about Joseph's family. You know that they were dysfunctional. You know that they were twisted and a damaged family. And you know that Judah had been hurt and wounded deeply by his father's favoritism. And you also know that Judah was the cold-hearted ringleader. He was the brother who came up with the idea, let's sell Joseph into slavery. And if you go back and read the other accounts that happened in the life of Judah, you'll see that his past was dark and sinful. It's full of jealousy, slave trading, incest, and even 
murder. This guy was no Boy Scout. But through, through the tender discipline of a good, good father, he is able to forgive his earthly father and to lay down his life for the object of his father's favoritism. You see, when he began to be convicted of his sin, he began to think about himself differently. In 44.16, his confession is this. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He's not referring to the cup. He knows he didn't take the cup. He's saying, God has found out our guilt of selling our brother into slavery. And there's this change that begins to happen in Judah's life. He's no longer focusing on the sin of his father against him. He's focusing on his sin against his brothers and ultimately against the Lord. And this time, Judah, instead of sacrificing his brother for his own gain, his own self-interest, he now sacrifices himself for his brother. Judah comes full circle in his life. You know, this is the first time in the Bible where we see one human being laying down their life for another. And because Judah was willing to suffer for a crime he did not commit, they were all forgiven of the crimes that they did commit. It's quite a transformation in Egypt in the life of Judah. And you know that Joseph needed this test. He needed this final jeopardy to see if there had been genuine repentance in the life of Judah and in the hearts of his other brothers. There needed to be, what? A substitutionary sacrifice in order to bring reconciliation and restoration to their family. Friends, I would submit that the same is true for us today. That we too need a substitutionary sacrifice to deal with our broken souls and to bring shalom and peace, and restoration, and the possibility of reconciliation into our lives. And there's good news for you and I. You see, as the brothers had a Judah, we too have a Judah. It's actually quite amazing. There's the ultimate Judah in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. If you trace the lineage of Jesus, it's amazing. He wasn't descended from Reuben. He wasn't descended from Joseph. But Jesus was a descendant of David who was a descendant of Judah. And that's why one of the nicknames of Jesus, one of his names is the Lion of Judah. In God's amazing grace, grace, truth that is stranger than fiction, he takes this dysfunctional family and Jesus himself comes from the line of Judah. And that's good news for you and I. Because our broken souls need a Judah. We need a substitutionary sacrifice. And we have one. His name is Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just offer to become a slave. Like Judah did. He actually became a servant. He actually lost his life. And that's what reconciled us to the Father. Jesus was born, suffered, died, and rose again as part of God's plan to create a reconciled family 
through the suffering of a substitute. Friends, we meant the cross for evil, but God meant it for good. We need and we have a substitutionary sacrifice, the Lion of Judah, that enables us to experience shalom and restoration and reconciliation for our broken souls. God transformed Judah's past and he will do the same for us. Four quick applications for you to think about. The first is this. In this story, we see that God is at work for the good of even bad people. Throughout the story, many of you may identify more with Joseph, but maybe some of you are sitting here today and you actually identify more with Judah. Maybe you're the one who has hurt and harmed others. And what we see in this story, that even though we may have been the Judah, God by His grace is still working through the mundane and ordinary things of life for our good to turn us into trophies of His grace. Who is this family? It's one of the most dysfunctional bunches who haven't done anything right. And if there's hope for them, then there's hope for me and you. The way that we say this in Tennessee is that if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. (laughs) You think about that. Somebody had to put it on top of the fence post. If you see this dysfunctional family then you know they weren't redeemed by their own merit. You know that God's grace did it. You see, God's grace is at work for your good. And friends, if I really think about this, one of the things that Satan tries to convince us of is that we're too bad for God's goodness. Satan tries to convince us that he can forgive other people's sin, but he can't forgive our own. You know, The pastoral counseling that many of your pastors do is often just assuring people that their sins will be remembered no more. Not by finding ways to prove yourselves worthy of God's love, but by receiving and resting alone on the salvation of Christ through faith alone in Christ alone. And that is the only way that we deserve redemption. You see, Jesus had a better plan. Believe in Him and anything can be redeemed because why? He became our sin. You see, in the gospel, Jesus doesn't minimize our sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. He actually says, you're more sinful and your sins are worse than you even believe. Your sin is so deep and so great that it costs nothing less than the perfect Son of God to shed His blood on the cross. Your sin is so great that I had to come and die myself. He doesn't minimize our sin. And He tells us, if I am the one that have the right to condemn you and I don't condemn you, then why do you continue to condemn yourself? Don't just believe that forgiveness is for good people, but pray for faith to believe that grace is for you, for bad people. Sin is great and deep, but His grace is greater and deeper. God is at work for the good of even bad people. 
And if that is true, then this second thing is true. You are not defined by your past. The past has a totalizing temptation where shame can quickly become all-consuming. It's easy to look at our past mistakes, our broken records, and to think that is the core of who we are. So, but God is at work in our lives, so our past is not our identity. Judah is no longer a jealous murderer, but he's an adopted son of the God Most High. Friends, today, no matter what you've done in your past, that is not your identity. You are not the angry person. You are not your sexual sin. You are not your manipulation. You are not broken beyond repair today. You are not your past. Yes, our past is part of our stories, but it is not our identity. In Christ, for those who have genuinely repented, and place their faith in Jesus Christ, not only are our sins transferred to Christ, but His righteousness is transferred to us. And so that when God sees us, He doesn't see our sin, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. And because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are accepted and we are His beloved And he looks at his sons and daughters and says, In you, I am well pleased. Your past is not your identity. Christ is your identity. It was true for Judah, and it's true for us. Friends, this is grace. Now, let's think about this for a minute, okay? Those are two really good points for Judah's. Now let me make a point applied for those of us who are called to love Judas in our life. How do we extend forgiveness like Joseph extended to Judah? So if God is at, the, at work for even the good of bad people, if your past is not your identity, then I would submit to you that forgiveness is not easy, but it is possible. Forgiveness is not easy. If you read chapters 42 through 45... Three times Joseph is overcome, so overcome by the pain of his brothers that he has to leave the room to weep. It's not easy. Sin is still sin. It's horrible and it's painful. And sin is never a good thing in itself. It's never okay. Just because the providence of God can work sinful things for his good, it doesn't give us an excuse to sin all the more. It's not okay. Joseph spent the best years of his life imprisoned and as a slave. So forgiveness is not easy, but it is possible. It was possible for Joseph because of two things. One, the providence of God. God working all things, including sin, for our good. His brothers were always up to no good, but God was always up to good. The same is true in our life. People may be up to no good in our lives, but God is up to good in our lives. It's amazing if you look at Joseph's speech. He says in 45.5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Over and over, he talks about the providence of God, and that will soften your hearts and prepare you for forgiveness. But the greater resource was the substitutionary sacrifice. And we have a greater sacrifice than what Judah did. 
we have the cross of Jesus Christ where His perfect mercy and justice met. You see, God is a just God and He will leave no sin unpunished. Friends, God is a just God. And so that means the sins that have been committed against us are either paid for by the perpetrator for all of eternity in hell or they were paid for by Christ on the cross and the wrath of God was satisfied. So no sin goes unpunished. Either we pay for it or Jesus paid for it on the cross. And what's amazing is that there's mercy at the cross, not just justice, because all sin is forgiven because all of what was done to Him. Friends, when we recognize that we are sinful brothers, that we are more like Judah than we'd care to admit, we begin to forgive like Joseph. You know, amazing grace enables amazing forgiveness. He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. It's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. It's challenging. And I do just want to take a pastoral moment to say that I know that forgiveness can be emotionally charged. And so, if you have questions about what forgiveness does or does not look like, if you have questions about the way that repentance relates to forgiveness and forgiveness relates to reconciliation, I can't take the time to apply forgiveness to all of your situations, but a great way to do that is in your home fellowship groups. And if you have more mess than your home fellowship group can handle, we'd love to talk to you about it. So if you have questions about forgiveness, about what it means and what it doesn't mean, don't hesitate to talk about that. But what we see in this story is that forgiveness is not easy for the Judas in our life, but forgiveness is possible because of Jesus in our life. And then the fourth and final point for us is this. In the end, we will celebrate. It may not happen this side of heaven, but ultimately in eternity, we will celebrate. It's the language of 45-7 when Joseph is talking about preserving a remnant and survivors. Those are the words that are used all throughout Scripture saying that God is going to preserve a people for Himself for one day, someday, when the Messiah will come back, we will celebrate. And so one day, someday, when the Messiah comes back and those who believe, the survivors and the remnant, will be embraced by our brother Jesus. He will weep on our necks. We will hug it out. And we will share stories for all of eternity about what he's done in our life. And in 45, the brothers receive this fertile land, Goshen. It's echoes of Eden. And for you and I, in the end, we'll celebrate because we'll get a land better than Goshen. We'll get a land better than Eden. We're going to get the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, God was working all things for the good of Joseph's brothers. And God is working all things for the good of us. God is at work for the good of bad people. You are not defined by your past. Forgiveness is not easy, but it's possible. And in the end, we will celebrate. Now this was one of those days, this was one of those moments that Joseph will remember and talk about for all of eternity. And today, 
can be one of those moments in your life where you're born again, where you're made new, where you become a new creation in Christ. Because the Lion of Judah says to you and I this morning, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Friends, it's an easy choice for me. Do I want to pay for my sins or do I want the substitute to pay for my sins? I know the decision that I have made. I encourage you to consider that today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this sermon is a hard sermon because on the one hand, I'm filled with joy at my own forgiveness, but I'm filled with mixed feelings as I think about having to extend that forgiveness to others. Father, there are so many different situations, so many different stories in this room. And so I pray that you would help us to work out all those stories in line with your word. Father, give us great wisdom and care for one another as we do that in community. Father, help us to see the depths of our sin so that we might forgive others, so that the world would be stunned by the beauty of Christ that they see in the people of God. Father, thank you that we are adopted, that we are saved, not through what we have done, but through the Lion of Judah, our sacrifice, Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.